Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. I love grapes and cherry tomatoes. What do you love? Bluey. Bluey, yeah. I love Marvel Avengers. I love family and friends. I love Lucy and Phoebe. Lucy, do you love dinosaurs? You love cats? Yum, yum. You love food? Yum, yum. You love daddy? I love dinosaurs. I love sleep. I love dog walking. I love cycling. I love mountains. I love scuba diving. I love teaching. Love reading. And I love answers to prayer. I love board games. I love cheese and my family. I love playing with my nephews. Caleb loves banana. I love having a great meal with my family. I love listening to podcasts and sewing for my grandchildren. I love a novelty mug. I love them even better when they're filled with tea. I love my job and being part of the community here in Romsey. I love making things that people enjoy using. I love heat, I love speed, motorbikes and cars, and I love catching snakes. That's the best. I love this, a cold frosty morning and a mad dog walk, brilliant. I love the sunshine on my face. I love to chat to God, to friends and family and to any random stranger that will listen. I love this ball of fluff. I love cycling. I love peanut butter and banana sandwiches. I love working in my dressing gown. Good morning. That was fantastic, wasn't it? Firstly, I'd like to thank Eve for organising that and putting it together. It was so nice to see so many faces and to hear what you love. There's something strangely powerful about the word love. I remember the first time that I told my girlfriend, and who's now my wife, that I love her. That kind of nervous excitement that I was going to tell her. That terror once I'd said those words and was just trying to get them back in my mouth. And then that relief and that comfort when she said it back to me. By saying what you love, you expose your passions, your commitment, your priority, but it also makes you vulnerable. And it's meaningful and insightful to who you are. As I said, it's quite a strange word though, isn't it, love? We, um, in English, we use the same word to describe the way I love my wife, the way we love family and friends and God, the way we love food, and the way that we love um, just being outdoors in nature. And yet I imagine, and I'm quite hopeful, that actually the way that we communicate that love and deal with that love is quite different in each of those situations. In Greek, there's at least four different ways that they used to describe love. They used to describe it by romantic love, 
and friendship and self, um, love of self and um, love of others, where we use that same word to do all of those things and including just things that we're a little bit fond of. To make matters worse, our whole culture seems to be obsessed with love. It is ranked as one of the highest human experiences. We um, hold great hope in it and, um, and being loved and being loved by someone. Films and television often have a story life where, some, where someone is trying to find love, is trying to um, feel complete when they meet that special person, or maybe their actions are driven by love to do something special. As a single person, you may feel pressure to find love. And Love Island seems to be a national obsession. We are told that we are fulfilled when we love our job. Or maybe that we will be more lovable if we dress the right way, or maybe even smell the right way. However, our friends and our family and our job and our possessions are not perfect, and they let us down. In fact, too often, it is the people that we love the most and who are meant to love us who often hurt us the most. So it leaves me wondering, when I announce that Jesus loves you as the reason that um, my life has changed and that I changed my life, I'm wondering what they're thinking. Are they thinking that's the same love that Jordan has for his novelty mugs? Or is that the same love that my ex-partner um, had for me. Because on the one hand, that might be not that life-changing or might be something that you don't want to change your life for. We're going through a series where we're going through the whole Bible and I have, without doubt, the best part. I have the pinnacle of the whole Bible, the account of Jesus's life. If you don't know where to start reading the Bible, start here because you get the fullest description of God it is God who has come down in human form, and it is so relatable. And as I go through this good news, this gospel, I'm going to help us see what it means to be loved by God and why this really is life-changing. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I recently quoted this at a school assembly. It was the annual anti-bullying week assembly, but I decided to do something different. I decided not to look at what a bully is, but look at the opposite, the antithesis. And it struck me, if a bully is someone who sees someone that is outcast and weak, and from their position of power, decides to put on more suffering onto that person. Then the opposite would be someone who, see, who sees someone who is outcast and weak, and from their place of power, steps down, comes, um, is, comes alongside them, and helps them and rescues them from that situation. And I could think of no better example of this than that of Jesus Christ, who came down from the comfort of heaven to be with us to be Emmanuel, God with us. You see, God does not stand by like a cosmic bully, but quite the opposite. He loves us. Um, he came to be with the outcasts, the sick, the poor, those who have committed adultery, 
those who have cheated others of money, the hotheads, the one people who feel like they are a foreigner. He came to those who struggle to believe. You see, God does not just express his love. God is love. His love centers on others. He gives of himself and he creates community. You see, he came down from heaven to become fully man while being fully God, to serve and to heal and to rescue. In the Great Commission, as Jesus sent out his disciples before his ascension back to heaven, he emphasized that this was not going to change. He said, I'll be with you as you do this, day by day, right up until the end of the age. God the creator, who has all authority in heaven and earth, is with you right now. God's love really is life-changing. Before Jesus's ministry, he was baptized by his cousin John and the Holy Spirit appeared as a dove and a voice came from heaven and said, you are my son who I love and whom I am well pleased. But Jesus hadn't really done anything up to this point. We have Jesus as an infant, a child, a little bit when he's in the temple as a, a young boy, then a huge gap, and he turns water into a wine, and then this. Jesus had kind of done nothing really of note, and yet he says these words. And you might think that's fair enough. This is Jesus's, uh, this is God's own son. This is the way he feels about um, him. But the mind-blowing thing is that we are invited into this family. In the Gospel of John, right at the beginning, when he's laying out the purpose of, um, of the story, he says, to all who receive him and believe in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. And as children of God, we are co-heirs with Christ and we are loved and he is pleased with us. Now, there's, there's a way I like to think about this, okay? So the way that common culture or the world tells it is this. If we achieve something, then we will be significant. And then we'll be able to get everything we need. And then finally, we will be loved and accepted. But the opposite is true of God. The cycle of grace and love looks like this. First, you are loved and accepted. He will then give you everything you need. It says, I am the bread of life. Whoever um, comes to me will never be hungry. Do not worry about what you will eat or drink, for the pagans run out of the, after these things, but your heavenly Father knows what you need. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all of this will be added to you. He will give you all you will need, and then you will be significant. He will empower you to be a sign of him. And finally, after you've got all of this support, then go and achieve for Christ. God's love is radically different to the world's way. As you, as you receive God, he says to you, you are my child whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. God's love is really life-changing. We're now gonna hear from Simon and how Jesus' love has changed his life. 
I lost my own dad uh, when I was eight years old. Um, there were quite serious circumstances. He, he was murdered. Throughout my early teens and 20s that affected my behavior, I got into all sorts of trouble, um, a lot of trouble. Um, I was quite an angry kid, quite a violent kid. And, you know, I didn't really sort of talk. I would, you know, my fist did more talking than my mouth. And then I met Jenny, who is my lovely wife. And I met her dad for the first time when I was about 29 years old. And he was a bedrock in terms of my spiritual development. He was somebody who listened to me intently, took me seriously. Um, and that spiritual element that he brought changed my life, changed my outlook, changed everything. You know, I actually was one of the power bearers at his funeral. It was probably one of the hardest days of my life. The sense of loss I felt was it was quite profound. I didn't realise it would affect me that badly, but it did. When I finally sort of accepted Jesus into my life and starting to go through the Bible, um, it was just mind blown by some of the truths in it, or some of the claims that were made, some of the things and the way God described himself. And I'm like, well, you, so you did all that for me. Your son died for me didn't make any sense to me. Why would you die for me? You know, you see the state of my life, you know? And at the time, you know, there was you know, alcohol, all the rest. It was all there. It was all the things that you could possibly do to run yourself off the road. Um, but God came in and through his word, which was just massive, just started to really start to, I started to put stuff together. When I finally realized that God is my father, that it changed everything. It changed how I focused. It changed how I saw situations because I knew I wasn't alone. Sometimes in this world, you go through things and you think you're on your own. You could be in a whole room full of people and feel like you're on your own, but you realize that God's your father. So at no point are you alone. And that was a game changer. That's the most profound truth I can say after what maybe 20 years as a Christian coming up, he's with me. The title of this talk is Messiah and Love. And Messiah means the anointed king. Jesus is king and has started to bring his kingdom on earth. The values of this kingdom are told in the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount and led a complete revolution in the, um, in the values that we have. The weak, the worn out, and the humble are lifted up. God came to embed a completely new value system and a new way of relating to God and others. His kingdom was not about government and borders, but a revolution of how people love God and love others. And yet I don't know if you feel this, that there feels like a big difference between me and God. That what can I offer in this relationship? See, if we were to observe a couple and we saw one part of the couple being um, very confident, um, being very talented, being very overpowering, and the other member of the couple just kind of um, wilting um, and um, shrinking within that, and losing their identity, we would question, 
Is that really a loving couple? But with God, we, we kind of think that is appropriate because God is God and we are not. His ways and his wisdom are far higher than our ways and our wisdom. And it is right for us to humble ourselves and kneel before him. But the amazing thing is that God does not leave us there. We are not disempowered, but we are empowered. In Luke 10, when Jesus, the best preacher that there ever was, um, was, was still around, he, he sent 72 people to take the message for him. He could have done a way better job himself. He could have sent just the 12, the people who were closer to him. He sent 72. He did not even need to ask them or trust them, but he chose them to be involved in his kingdom. He gave them authority to drive out demons and to heal the sick. He gave them purpose and identity as active members in the kingdom. God's love is empowering. It's trusting. It's involving. In John 13, um, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, um, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I don't know how many times he could have said love one another within a short few sentences. You see, we are not just called to be loved by God in a one-way situation, but we are to take his example and to change others' lives with his love. We need to follow his examples by leaving our comfort zone and to be with the outcasts, to find ways to lift people up out of their suffering. We need to people, be people that love first, to give people what they need, to help free people and, and from captivity and to empower people. Joe Ibbett spoke briefly about this last week and wrote a little blog that came out on an email. She said, it's not about doing, um, about doing things, but it's about our actions being underpinned by love. I wonder the if the question should be something like this. Not necessarily, um, should we be doing more? But are we doing the things that we're doing in love? How are we doing it? Another question might be, are we on a journey to become the image of God? The God that is love? Or does the way that I do things point to Jesus and his radical new kingdom? We are called to be one body, to find our calling um, in him and his plan for our lives. Jesus is king, but we are empowered by his love to take our place in his kingdom and to direct others to, to him by the way we love others. God's love really is life-changing. In Romans 5, it says, but God shows his love for us that while we were, um, for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in 1 John 3, it says, by this we know um, we are loved, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So I've just shared how 
The way that we should be known and the way that we point to Jesus is love. And yet one of the biggest symbols, the thing that is probably most identified with Christianity, is the cross. The cross, which is a torture instrument, a way of killing someone. How on one hand can we say that we are identified by love and yet put around our necks and on, in stained glass windows this instrument that, um, of horrific torture? The gospel spends more chapters on the final week um, of Jesus' life leading up to his death than any other, just to emphasise its importance. So at the beginning of this week, everything was going brilliantly. Jesus entered Jerusalem and the people in the streets singing Hosanna, which means he rescues us. He was going to the capital, the seat of power and government as king, and he was going to take his rightful place and overthrow the occupiers, or so they thought. But then the week changed. Jesus went to the, the synagogue and had a run-in with the priests. And then came the Passover meal. Now, the Passover meal is a celebration of um, the exodus, which Sarah Long talked about. And in particular, the last plague, which was when they were told to take a perfect lamb and put the blood around their door. And then the, the consequences of Pharaoh's actions would pass over them and they would go free. And at this meal, Jesus uses this story to explain his death and, and he symbolizes it by taking the bread and breaking it and saying, this is my body, broken for you. And taking the wine and saying, this is my blood as a symbol of the promise that you are forgiven. It shows what will happen, that he, is, he will die as the perfect lamb and the consequences of our actions would be passed over to him and that we would be forgiven. This is the completion of the story, starting with Adam and Eve, who chose the road of the lie of the serpent, um, that there weren't real, any real consequences, that your actions don't really matter. The serpent said, you won't really die. And the lie that we can have the wisdom and authority to be like God and choose what is good and what is bad. God promised back then that one day someone would come and crush that serpent's head. But there would be a cost as it would strike his heel. Christ's death was not easy. There was huge sacrifice. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see a real insight into the realization of the pain and suffering that was coming. He says to his friends, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And then he spoke to his father praying, my father, if it is possible to may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The only perfect Jesus who had done nothing wrong, um, who did not have to take the consequences of his own sin, lovingly stood in our place to take ours. He died for us, but he also rose again. You see, he not only took the consequences in death, but turned them around and shows us that he will give us the new life. The consequence that our sin defines us and holds us captive. Jesus says, 
I'm taking that consequence. My blood is the promise that you are forgiven. Now let me show you how you can be raised up with me and born again. The consequence of us rejecting God and breaking our relationship with him, Jesus says, I'm taking that consequence and I'm tearing the dividing curtain in two. I will send the Holy Spirit to always be with you. The consequence that um, our actions really do matter and they really do lead to death. Jesus says, I'm taking that consequence. I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. No one can snatch you from my hand. Jesus has made a way for us to return to the Garden of Eden, to be recreated in his image by his life-changing love, to step off the path started by Adam and Eve and return to the way of his kingdom, to not live with the consequences of our past mistakes, but commit our lives to live under his wisdom and to be able to walk and commune with him like Adam and Eve, to not fear death, but know that Jesus has won the victory. He is risen and he is the anointed king. God's love really is life-changing. This love is radically different to the way we, we love board games or chatting to anyone who will listen or even catching snakes. This love really is life-changing. God is with you. He has invited you to be part of his family. You are pleasing to him before you have done anything. He gives you everything you need. He gives you freedom and purpose and identity. He trusts you to be a sign of him. He died for you. He dealt with the consequences of sin. He defeated the power of death. He can turn our life around. He has made it possible for us to be with him, um, for us to never die and to be with him. He loves you. If you want God's love to change your life today, then he is calling you, he's inviting you to do that now. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you have not been letting God's love have any impact on your life. Well, today is the day to reaffirm your place with him. If this is you, then I invite you to pray with me now. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you love me. I receive your love. I believe the truths that you have told me through the gospel. I believe that you came to rescue me. I believe you came to give me purpose and identity. I believe you died and rose again so that I may be forgiven. Lord, you are the Messiah. You are my King. I choose to follow you. Help me to be an example of love to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.
For more information about Freedom Church, please go to www.freedomchurch.uk. Thank you for listening.